June 25, 2020 marks the 70th anniversary of the start of the Korean War. The conflict on the Korean Peninsula has been going on for so long that we sometimes see it as a natural extension of the Second World War. But we forget that the tragic division was one that no one had planned or wanted. So how did the Koreas end up becoming two countries if neither the United States or the Soviet Union had wanted this to happen? To take us back to those fateful early years of the Cold War, we caught up with historian Charles Krauss. He is the deputy director of the History and Public Policy Program at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. The Wilson Center's digital archives recently curated a series of declassified documents from the Soviet Union that reveal what the country's chief policymakers, including Stalin, expected on the Korean Peninsula at the end of the Second World War. These documents weave a complex story of missed opportunities and misaligned intentions that ultimately yielded a tragedy. With no further delay from the Korea Economic Institute, I'm your host, Yang Kwan, social distancing from Washington, D.C., and you're listening to Korean Context. Charles, thank you so much for joining Korean Context today. Thanks for having me. You work at the History and Public Policy Program at the Woodrow Wilson Center, where you maintain a sizable collection of archival materials from the Cold War. Could you give listeners a sense of what kind of documents you work with? Sure. So the History and Public Policy Program includes the more well-known Cold War International History Project, as well as the North Korea International Documentation Project. And for the past 30 years, the program has collected documents from all over the former communist world to illuminate Cold War history and to provide a non-American, non-Western perspective on the Cold War. And one of our major accomplishments over this time has been really internationalizing the study of the Korean War. Going back all the way to the early 1990s, we've been collecting documents from the former Soviet archives in Moscow about the Korean War from archives in China, from across Eastern Europe, and from other countries. And a lot of these documents, they include Stalin's meetings with Kim Il-sung and Mao Zedong, or their correspondence between these communist leaders. And they've really fundamentally changed what we know about the Korean War, from its origins to the conduct of the war and to its ends. Speaking of fundamentally changing our perspectives on the origins of the Korean War, you recently penned some articles using these archival documents on the division of the Korean Peninsula ahead of the 70th anniversary of the Korean War. Just from the conventional perspective, the Western perspective that you mentioned earlier, the general sense is that once the Soviet occupation of the northern part of the peninsula is established, and the Allies take over the southern end of the peninsula, it almost feels like there was an unavoidable pathway towards the Korean War. But the documents that you're working with kind of highlight that there were efforts between the Soviet Union and the United States to resolve the division. Can you set the scene for the audiences on what we were witnessing on the Korean Peninsula in the 1940s? I think you're right. It's easy in retrospect, given what we know about the Cold War and the hostility between the United States and the Soviet Union to sort of see the permanent division of Korea and the war as the inevitable outcomes of that global confrontation between the the two superpowers. But really, when you look at the details of U.S.-Soviet negotiations over Korea and what was actually happening on the ground in Korea, it's quite messy, and it shows that it, it really could have gone any other way. Just sort of get at the sort of the key details of what was going on between the United States and the Soviet Union 
at this time, there's a few things you want to note. First would be during World War II, when the Soviet Union and the United States, as well as the other allied powers, had a series of meetings to discuss what will the world look like after this conflict ends. And Korea was mentioned several times at some of these very important summit meetings. So in the 1943 Cairo Declaration, for example, it was announced that Korea would not be quite ready for its own self-government after the end of World War II. And instead, it would have tutelage or trusteeship by the allied powers. Fast forward to the end of World War II, the dividing line at the 38th parallel was made in haste by the Americans. And the Americans were basically seeking to prevent the Soviet Union from sending troops down the entire peninsula. So it was decided that they would divide it essentially in half and that the Soviet Union could occupy the north while the Americans could occupy the south. A few months later, in December 1945, several of the foreign ministers or secretary of state of the Allied powers meet in Moscow. And one of the things they decide upon is that the United States and the Soviet Union will create what they called the Joint Commission. And the Joint Commission would be responsible with achieving that goal that was articulated earlier of getting Korea to the point where it could have an independent, unified government. So that the Joint Commission was intended to end this joint occupation by the Soviet Union in the United States and get Korea to a point where it could have its own independent, unified self-government. Behind all of this, again, I should emphasize, there was this sort of the assumption that Korea was not quite ready to have a government of its own immediately after the end of World War II, that the Koreans had to be guided to that. Right. And it bears, I think, re-emphasizing also that the intention, though, was for there to be a single unified Korean state at the end of the process. And I think that's something that is kind of lost in the historical narrative, just going back to how we began this conversation. Now, in this joint commission, the key leading figures from the United States and the Soviet Union are U.S. Secretary of State George Marshall and Soviet Foreign Minister Vyacheslav Molotov. They're looking to, of course, as you mentioned, guide the Koreans towards creating a unified Korean state and withdraw the occupation of the Allied and Soviet forces. But what are their respective goals at the end of this? It couldn't have been entirely pursuant of non-selfish ends, right? I completely agree. I think on both the part of the United States and the Soviet Union, when they began this process, No one's goal was to keep Korea divided. Both sides, I do think, earnestly wanted to see a unified Korean government, but they both wanted a Korean government that was favorable or more friendly to them rather than to the other party. So in terms of the key stakeholders, you had mentioned Marshall and Molotov. So actually, the negotiations and the discussion about Korea went on at two levels. And one was through this platform called the Joint Commission which met in Korea, and that was attended by Soviet representatives who were on the ground in North Korea, as well as members of the U.S. military government in South Korea. And they met in spring 1946, and they failed to come to any agreement on the fate of Korea. So the Joint Commission went into a hiatus for several months, but then it revived activity in 1947. But the end result was the same. The two sides couldn't come to an agreement. So then what happens is parallel to these negotiations that are happening on the Korean Peninsula, the U.S. Secretary of State Marshall and the Soviet Foreign Minister Molotov begin exchanging letters with one another to sort of 
give some energy or sort of change the dynamic of the negotiations. But really, these letters that they sent to each other, they were, you know, they're important. But it's clear to see that the two sides weren't cooperating whatsoever. The letters they wrote to each other are, are somewhat courteous, but beneath the sort of formalities, you see a lot of resentment and finger pointing going on. And it really shows how far apart the two sides were on the question of Korea. Both sides wanted a Korean government that would be more friendly to one and not the other. For the Soviet Union, part of this was because the Soviet Union does share a border with Korea, so it wanted to guarantee its security. For the U.S., having a friendly government was important for other U.S. interests in Asia, including the occupation of Japan. But the challenges there were, there was a lot of misunderstandings on both sides. So what was exactly the Soviet sticking points beyond having a friendly government of the Korean Peninsula? Are there anything that you see from the cables that Molotov really, really wanted for the United States to concede? And what were some points that George Marshall was unwilling to give up on? What the Soviets really wanted to achieve in these negotiations, it was really the question of who spoke for Korea? which Koreans could speak for Korea. And by that, I mean, which Koreans could participate in the Joint Commission and advise the Soviet Union and the United States and help them to achieve this goal of Korean independence. And the Soviet Union staked out a position where they said they would not allow any Korean to participate if they had previously opposed this idea of trusteeship. And many of the leaders in southern Korea, including Sigmund Rhee, who would eventually become the first president of the Republic of Korea, as well as some other moderate or conservative leaders, had publicly come out against the idea of trusteeship. So from the Soviets' perspective, they wanted to disqualify these people because of this political position. But what that meant for the United States is essentially all of the moderate or conservative politicians and parties wouldn't be eligible to participate in the Joint Commission. And what that would leave is basically these leftist or communist parties and politicians that were sympathetic to the Soviet Union participating. The United States recognized that this wouldn't be really fair to both sides if you cut out half of the potential participants. And that was really the key sticking point over the years was what Koreans could participate in the Joint Commission and what would their role be. And it was really a fundamental problem between the two sides that they they couldn't resolve. Is it your sense that the Soviet Union made the argument against the participation of local politicians who oppose the trusteeship out of kind of the cynical maneuver to eliminate and exclude pro-American voices from this new Korean state that would be created? Or was there a deeper ideological or political position that was being taken? If you read some of the correspondence, the Soviet Union makes it seem as if it's a matter of principle in the sense that the United States and the Soviet Union had agreed in December 1945 on what the road forward would be for Korea, and that included trusteeship. And you allowed brand politicians who disagreed with that sort of fundamental starting point to participate. You're sort of throwing out this original principle, but you can take the other view that it's fairly clear in retrospect that, as I said, the Soviet Union was interested in having a friendly government in Korea. And the easiest way to do that was you limit who can participate in that government and you limit it to people who you know are your allies. Who are some of the key Korean voices that are influencing the local development? Um, That's a good question. I mean, obviously, Kim Il-sung was quickly becoming the foremost and most important leader in North Korea. And from what we can tell, he generally supported the USSR's approach 
in the Joint Commission and its approach more generally with the Americans, if he was able to influence sort of what the Soviet Union was doing is another question. I don't know that we have sort of any evidence of that. It's safe to say that the Soviet Union had a much easier time obtaining support for its positions than the United States did. The United States frequently complained about the positions that South Korean leaders were taking in regards to the Joint Commission and had a lot of problems sort of managing that relationship with Sigmund Rhee in particular. There's a great book by David Fields, and he's written a handful of articles on this that really illustrates that Sigmund Rhee was one of the most challenging foreign leaders that the United States has ever had to deal with. He was a, an important ally. You know, South Korea was an important ally to the United States, but that didn't stop him from creating a lot of headaches for all sorts of American leaders. Now, one other kind of side development that is highlighted in these cables that you studied recently is the Soviet decision behind sending uh, economic advisors and engineers to the northern occupation zone in the Korean peninsula. Could you speak to us about what the Soviets were aiming to get out of providing economic assistance to this northern occupation zone? The person who would become the first Soviet ambassador to North Korea, Shtikov, really advocated for sending aid to North Korea, and that could be sending engineers to North Korea or having North Korean engineers come to the Soviet Union to study, sending various pieces of equipment, financial aid, educators to Korea. And really, the goal there was not to just be generous and help this new post-colonial state as it's getting started. The Soviet Union wanted something in return. And if you read some of the correspondences that these Soviet advisors are sending back to Moscow, they're really making the argument that it's important for us to aid North Korea right now, and by right now I mean 1946, 1947, because when Korea is unified and independent, we want Korea to be friendly to the Soviet Union more so than it is to the United States. Mm -hmm. So if we're generous today, this will pay sort of long-term dividends in terms of Soviet foreign policy and achieving Soviet interests in East Asia. And that sort of speaks to this point I made earlier that no one really wanted the division of Korea to be permanent. This was an outcome that nobody wanted, but it materialized because of the failure to reach a consensus in these negotiations. In your blog, you mentioned that a key breaking point comes in 1947, when the Soviet Union called for establishment of a provisional all-Korean People's Assembly that is composed of representatives from both North and Southern Korea to advise the Joint Commission, but the United States called for an alternative and called for the end of the bilateral discussions and to move the discussion on the future of the Korean Peninsula to the United Nations. Why did the split occur? Was it just because the United States didn't want to deal with the impasse anymore? What was happening during this time? The Joint Commission conducted negotiations over the summer of 1947, and at the same time, you're having this higher-level correspondence between Marshall and Molotov. And again, the sticking point was what Koreans could participate in the process. And by September 1947, the two sides really hadn't made much headway on this question, but the Soviet Union was prepared to put forward a new proposal. And as you just said, it was this provisional All-Korea People's Assembly, and it was sort of their counter-proposal to other things that had been pro proposed by the Americans. And at this point, the Soviet Union, if you read the correspondence sent from Stalin and some of his advisors, they seem to think that, yes, the negotiations are slow. Yes, there's been some problems, but 
we're moving forward and there's probably not that much more we need to do to reach an agreement with the Americans. But then all of a sudden in mid-September, Marshall in one of his letters to Molotov says, we've basically given up on bilateral negotiations with the Soviet Union. This is taking too long. There's no clear outcome. We feel like we're not ever going to reach an agreement. So Marshall says, we're going to turn this over to the United Nations. And in fact, I think it was the same day that he wrote this letter to Molotov is the same day that he's giving a a speech at the United Nations General Assembly. And in front of the UN, he announces this policy shift. And he says, the United States and the Soviet Union have really failed to live up to the ideals they had set out several years prior. He says that Korea, after all, is not an enemy nation. It's not fair to Korea to keep delaying their independence. And therefore, it would be better for a multilateral body like the United Nations to really take up responsibility for the issue and to organize elections that would lead to a single unified government on the peninsula. And shortly after Marshall gives this speech, you have some correspondences between the Soviet representatives who are at the UN General Assembly at that time uh, and Stalin. And it's clear that this policy shift really came as a surprise. It definitely threw the Soviet leadership into a frenzy. Uh, So the next day, the Soviet representative who's at the UN that time It's actually the deputy foreign minister Vashinsky, not the foreign minister Molotov. He gives a rebuttal to Marshall's speech. He says, Marshall and the United States are basically betraying the agreement that we reached in December 1945, that what Marshall proposed is unacceptable from the Soviet perspective. And over the next several weeks, to sort of fight back at this U.S. proposal to have the U.N. organize elections, The Soviet Union then says the United States and the Soviet Union should withdraw all troops from the Korean Peninsula and effectively hand the matter over to the Korean people themselves. So it shouldn't go to the UN and it shouldn't be the responsibility of the US or the Soviet Union. And then the Soviet Union also starts suggesting that this whole discussion uh, shouldn't be going forward without the Koreans in attendance at the UN. So the Soviet Union proposes that Korean representatives of North and South Korea should be invited to New York to participate in these discussions. But this again goes back to the question of what Koreans could speak for the Korean people. And obviously the representatives that the Soviet Union wanted to invite would be individuals who were you know, friendly to the Soviet Union. Right, right. That leads to really a stalemate between the US and the Soviet Union in September, October, 1947. Now, as a result of this division and opinion between the United States and the Soviet Union, What ends up happening is a UN-sponsored election in the southern part of the Korean Peninsula in 1948, and that establishes the Republic of Korea. And the northern part of Korea, where the Soviets have the most influence, they sit out of this election, and they end up producing a separate regime that produces the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. This is the origins of essentially the formal division between North and South Korea, But is war at this stage an inevitability? When does a discussion of an actual conflict between the North and the South first arise in the documentation? It comes up many times after the formation of, you know, two Korean governments on the peninsula. Kim Il-sung begins asking or hinting that he wants to launch an invasion of South Korea and unify the peninsula under his control. Kim Il-sung meets often with the Soviet ambassador. He talks about this a lot. Some of the key turning points would be March 1949, when Kim Il-sung travels to Moscow to meet with Stalin for the first time. In that discussion, he doesn't explicitly ask for permission 
to invade South Korea. But he does have a long discussion about the status of the armed forces in North and South Korea, the balance of power, you know, which army is stronger. Fast forward a couple of months to September 1949, Kim Il-sung is discussing waging a more limited offensive against South Korea. January 1950, after the end of the Chinese Civil War and the victory of the Chinese Communist Party, which I think really did inspire Kim Il-sung, he tells the Soviet ambassador that he is thinking of liberating the South. And he goes as far to say as he can't sleep at night because he's so preoccupied with this issue. But he doesn't get permission at that point quite yet. But then a few months later, Kim Il-sung travels to Moscow again in April 1950. And that appears to be the time at which Stalin finally approved Kim Il-sung's request to invade South Korea with the caveat that he says, Kim, you need to go to China and you need to discuss this with Mao Zedong and make sure he approves. So Kim Il-sung goes to China in May 1950. And although we don't have access to the records of the, the meetings between Kim and Mao, based on Mao's letters to Stalin, we know that Mao must have approved because Mao wrote to Stalin after meeting with Kim and He said, Kim Il-sung basically says, you've given the okay for launching a war against South Korea. Is that true? And Stalin writes back and he says, I've approved of the North Koreans could move towards uh, reunification. Uh, and then we know a month later, Kim Il-sung launches the Korean War. So the idea of a war came up often and it came up fairly early relative to the founding of the two Korean states. But I think it bears perhaps reminding though once more that it seems like the war discussion itself was also not set in 1948, that it still took a little bit of time for the ultimate decision to be made to engage in war. Is that kind of an accurate perspective? Yes, that's definitely accurate. And it, it also reveals that in the discussions of the Korean War, going all the way back to the start of the conflict, there was the question of, Is this something that Stalin forced upon the North Koreans or what was the Soviet role? And clearly, based on the documentary evidence, Stalin played a decisive role in giving the green light, what's often described as a green light for Kim Il-sung to launch an invasion. But really, without the constant nagging from Kim Il-sung, this probably would have never happened. I mean, it was really Kim Il-sung and the Koreans who felt so strongly about invading South Korea and reunifying the peninsula under their control, that's why this happened. It wasn't because Joseph Stalin or Mao Zedong came up with this idea. It's because the Korean leaders themselves felt so strongly about this issue that the war ultimately takes place. But it took a long time for Kim Il-sung to persuade Stalin that his country was ready to launch an invasion of South Korea, that it wouldn't create any sort of blowback for the Soviet Union or for the socialist bloc that the job could be done easily and quickly. And ultimately, Kim did persuade Stalin, but as we know from subsequent developments, things didn't go quite as smoothly as Kim had planned. I mean, this is such a complex and interesting and important chronology of developments, all the way from the initial discussions between the United States and the Soviet Union, all the way to Kim Il-sung finally asking the Soviet Union for assistance in a war for unification on the Korean Peninsula. But What are some questions that have not yet been answered by these new archival discoveries? What are some things that you're excited to continue finding and discovering in the new archives that would give us a better sense of the full scope of the developments around this period? 
you know, despite the waves of declassification in Moscow since the early 1990s, there are still some missing critical documents that would be great to have, including one of the meetings I just mentioned, which is the April 1950 meeting between Stalin and Kim Il-sung, where Stalin gives the okay for the invasion. We don't actually have the record of that meeting. We have the earlier one from 1949, but we don't have the one from April 1950. You know, as I mentioned just a moment ago, we don't have the records of the meetings between Kim Il-sung and the Chinese leadership in May 1950. So we're really left to sort of piece that together based off what the Chinese told their allies in Moscow and the diplomatic correspondence, which you know, doesn't include every detail. And it would be really great to have those documents one day, but I kind of doubt that the Chinese government will release them anytime soon. I think as sort of a more general comment on what is missing is more scholarship and, and a deeper understanding of the Soviet occupation of North Korea as a whole. If you look at the literature, there's really thick books that cover the U.S. occupation of South Korea and that are based off extensive research in the American archives. But really, at least in English, the same is not true for the Soviet occupation of North Korea. So somebody really needs to investigate that and make use of a lot of the Russian documents that have come out over the years. It's sort of at a broader level, there's, if you look at the Korean War and the division of Korea, there's really, to simplify things, there's two schools of thought. And one argument is that division of Korea and the origins of the Korean War are really connected to domestic and indigenous developments in Korea. That is the disputes between the left and the right in Korea. So really, you know, making the Koreans agents of their own history. And then the other school of thought is putting it in this broader international context that I've tried to, to lay out in our discussion today. And really what we need is someone to come in and try to integrate those two schools of thought that really does give the Koreans agency in this whole process and shows how Koreans contributed to the division of their country and how they you know, put the peninsula on the road to the war, but also embeds it in this broader international context of you know, U.S.-Soviet negotiations, the role of China and other actors. Charles, this was incredibly comprehensive description of a very complex and very interesting development that's deeply important for anybody's understanding of Korea in the past and also today. On that note, are there any lessons for current tensions and the current diplomatic stalemate on the Korean Peninsula from these archival findings. If you look at this history of, you know, Soviet-American negotiations over Korea in the, in the 1940s, it really does illuminate the challenges of getting any and all interested parties in, in an international dispute on the same page. And it really makes you appreciate it when countries, including those that are hostile or semi-hostile to one another, do make a breakthrough and, and do reach an agreement. And so, you know, international agreements that are achieved through, you know, countless hours of negotiations shouldn't be taken for granted. I think that this history also makes you think about today, where does Korea fit on the hierarchy of U.S.-China relations or U.S.-Russia relations? In the 1940s, Korea, I feel like it was always a low priority. It was never the top priority. And sort of thinking about what is the end game with North Korea or what steps can be taken, quote, resolve that problem. Obviously, the U.S. has to work with China, Russia, other partners. But the U.S. has a lot of other things going on in the relationships with these countries. And again, it's a matter of thinking about, well, where does Korea fit in terms of priorities? And what does that say about the prospects for making a breakthrough in any negotiations or sorts of agreements? That's it for our episode today. Many thanks to Charles Krauss 
and to you listeners for tuning in. You can find the link to the Wilson Center's digital archives in the description of this episode, alongside links to articles by Charles on the events described in this episode. And please check out the just-published issue of the Wilson Quarterly, which focuses on the Korean War. You can find the link to the issue, again, in the description of this episode. We also wanted to let you know that we have an exciting event coming up. On Wednesday, June 24th, we are joined by Cold War scholars James Person and William Stuck for a historical perspective on how the Korean War shaped the geopolitical tensions in Asia and how they continue to affect the current security environment in the region. You can find the RSVP to that event in the description of this episode. Hope to see you there!